All opinions expressed in this podcast by participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinion of BioVerge, Inc. or its affiliates. The participants' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither BioVerge or its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied on as such. Nothing contained in and accompanying this podcast shall be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to purchase any security by BioVerge, its portfolio companies, or any third party. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to the BioVerge Podcast with Neil Litton. Neil, we've got Pete Schultz on today. For listeners not familiar with him, who is Pete? I am incredibly excited to welcome Pete to the podcast today. So Pete is the president and CEO of Scripps Research. Uh, Scripps Research is based in La Jolla, California, uh, and they are really trying to sort of bridge the translational divide between you know, basic research, basic biology and chemistry through IND enabling studies, preclinical studies to move uh, a lot of regenerative medicine-based therapies into the clinic. So, uh, you know, I think Pete brings a, a really broad and unique perspective uh, running that organization. And, and actually, before that, he was the uh, uh, founding director of the California Institute for Biomedical Research, or Caliber. Um, he is a top-ranked uh, scientist in nature biotechnology uh, and a top translational researcher as well. So incredibly excited to welcome Pete to the show. I know you and Pete had some overlap at the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Did you know him? Uh, Pete and I did have the luxury of meeting while I was at CIRM. That was many years ago. Um, but CIRM did fund some work at, at Scripps. Um, and so uh, you'll hear Pete talk about uh, some, of the, some of the specific therapeutics that they are developing. Uh, if, I if I recall correctly, uh, CIRM funded some work for a osteoarthritis small molecule program that Scripps is developing. So I'm excited to talk to Pete about the, the the state of that program, as well as many others that they have ongoing. When he took the helm of Scripps, he brought a vision of making it a self-sustaining nonprofit. Where does Scripps fit into the drug discovery and development ecosystem today? Well, Danny, that's a great question for Pete. Uh, you know, my, my perspective is they sort of straddle the line, right, between the academic research and, and industry, right? I mean, they are, they are very much engaged in that translational sort of gap. Um, but I think, you know, culturally, I, I think they need to sort of merge the disciplines, right? The academic world of really being focused on publishing and then the, 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 the biopharmaceutical world, right, in terms of drug discovery, drug development and bringing therapies to patients. So I think, you know, from my outside perspective, I think Scripps has a really unique culture and a really unique model to try to bridge this, you know, unfortunately named Valley of Death. And what are you hoping to hear from him today? I'm looking to get an update on uh, some of the exciting programs that uh, that that Pete and his colleagues at Scripps are working on. They do a lot in the in the you know diseases of aging space. Um, a lot of their programs are really targeting um, 
different MOAs to reverse the, 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 the disease process, not just to slow it. So I think that's really exciting. And then I know they have a, a, a large focus on small molecules. So I think that's relatively unique within the field of regenerative medicine, where we hear so much about, you know, cell therapies, gene therapies. Um, so I, I, I want to dive into sort of what, what's unique about the small molecule approach within this world. Well, if you're all set, let's do it, Danny. Hi, Pete. Welcome to the show today. We're thrilled to have you with us. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Pete, today we are going to talk about Scripps Research, your efforts to do drug discovery in a nonprofit setting, uh, and your efforts around aging and the regenerative medicine space, a effort that's near and dear to my heart from my days working at the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Um, I want to give our listeners some context, though. So for people not familiar with what you're doing at Scripps, perhaps we can start there. When you took over at Scripps, you sought to create a self-sustaining business model, which I think is very unique. Can you uh, explain for our listeners um, how you're going about doing that? Yeah, um, just a little background on Scripps. It, it, it's a biomedical research institute. It's it's its history has been basic research and technology development, um, and, and it's has a rich history of that. A graduate program and and and. Uh, faculty everywhere from chemistry to neurobiology and molecular medicine. Um, But when I took on the leadership here uh, about four or five years ago, um, the question was, could we, could we do something uh, maybe different and bold? Um, And that is not only to do basic research, but accelerate the impact of that basic research on the development of new medicines. So, so add a very translational research arm, take a discovery, make a new medicine, whether it's a small molecule drug or a, or a biologic or a cell-based therapy, and then as an institution, put that all the way into, into human trials so we directly impact patients. So the idea was really to, to make this idea of bench-to-bedside real and seamless, um, and thereby do two things. A, um, accelerate um, uh, uh, the time it takes to go from uh, basic science to medicines that impact patients. And B, as we do that, um, uh, medicines that are in the clinic um, have huge, not only huge public health value, but huge uh, commercial value. And so the idea is if we move medicines all the way into the clinic and then, and then partner them with, with pharmaceutical companies for further um, uh, development, phase two, phase three trials, um, uh, there would be a significant um, financial return to the institute that we could then reinvest in basic and, and translational research to to. to uh, expand um, our capabilities and do even more. So the idea is, is you know, if you make a drug and, and some drugs now are partnered for hundreds of millions to billions of dollars with clinical data, 
if you reinvest that in the research enterprise, you can grow the research enterprise. You can make more medicines. You can have a bigger impact. So it's it's a little like in, in the business world, the flywheel model that it, it's it not only is self-sustaining, but it grows. So that's what we're trying to do, to do two things. OK, uh, uh, increase the impact on patients and actually uh, create a, a quote unquote business model for nonprofit research that that allows it to amplify uh, any impact of either federal funding or philanthropy. Because if you if you turn uh, a gift or NIH funding into a drug you put in the clinic, you increase the value and the impact of, of that initial funding pretty dramatically. That's the long answer to a short question. No, and I, and I love the model. Um, and, and so, Pete, I want, I want to dive into a point that you had mentioned around this idea of translational science, right? So you talk about moving from sort of basic research, basic biology through translation, even into the clinic. What, what role does Scripps play in helping to bridge that translational gap and move therapies from basic research through translation and into the clinic? So, so historically, the way that's worked with basic uh, research institutes is is you make a discovery or you you develop a technology um, and and you publish it okay you patent it you publish it but then it's transferred over to a startup company a startup company goes out and hires raises money which takes a lot of time hires a CEO you know head of BD head of science recruits science finds a site and then moves that molecule towards the clinic. Um, and then they partner with pharma and pharma runs the clinical trials and moves it further. Now, that whole process is very uh, siloed. OK, the, the academic institutions have a certain culture and certain motivations. The biotech startup, the same and the pharma, the same. And those cultures and motivations can be very different. And there are huge inefficiencies there that slow the whole thing down. And then you have this valley of death. So what we've asked is, can you actually bridge the first two and all under one roof? Can we make the discovery? Can we make the drug in-house? And can we file the IND? And can we put that into patients and, and lead the clinical study and then partner with pharma to take it into later stage clinical trials. So we're really trying to bridge the first two pieces of that uh, and make the whole process more efficient um, in terms of, of, of cost and in terms of time. Uh, uh, and, and actually um, uh, apply the resources you have more thoughtfully to the opportunities um, on your plate. So that's what we're really trying to do. And so we've actually, as part of this, we did it in an interesting way. A lot of institutions have tried to do this. And, and because the culture of drug discovery, which is very team-oriented um, and very uh, um, oriented on, on the final output, which is a molecule that goes into people rather than and an academic institution is really focused. It's a cottage industry. Every professor has his own lab and is really focused on publishing papers and, and promoting his career. 
people who have tried to build drug discovery operations in academic centers, it's been a challenge because of, of, of the different cultures and motivations and processes. What we did at Scripps is, is we took two nonprofit institutions. Scripps is a basic research institute and a, a, an institute called Caliber, um, which I built um, uh, about 10 years ago, which was a nonprofit institute focused just on drug discovery. And both were successful, so we just simply merged two successful entities together. So you didn't have to build one within the other. You had both built independently. They were successful, and people saw the value of, of, of both under one roof. So that's how we did it, and it's very different from the approach most people take. Yeah, and, and Pete, that's really interesting. I, I want to talk a little bit about how you how Scripps fits in culturally, right? Because you you talked a, a little bit about this, but you know, academic research mindset is is very different than the biopharmaceutical industry mindset. You sort of sit kind of in the in the, in the middle, right? You're, I mean, you're translating um, science, moving it into the clinic. So by definition, you sort of straddle the line there. How, how do you see Scripps fitting in culturally between those two worlds? Uh, you know, that's a really interesting question. You know, when I started my career at Berkeley um, longer uh, longer ago than I want to say, <laughs> you know, the two worlds were very separate. And, you know, um, I was involved in some startups in Silicon Valley, okay? Um, and at some level, people saw that as, you know, you were a traitor to the purest, you know, research, you know, uh, Ivy Tower mentality, okay? Um, so, so that's how it was then. Um, but now it's changed a lot. A lot of younger faculty, even older faculty, want to see the impact of their basic research on, you know, the public and public health. And, and so, it, you know, the bar is almost raised a little for scientists. Not only do people want to do great science, but the great science needs to have an impact on people and they want to participate in that. Um, so with that change, you know, in the old days, you know, and the analogy in physics was, you know, there was basic physics, but then there was Bell Labs that really bridged basic and applied physics and really translated basic physics into a huge impact on, on you know, the public with, you know, the transistor and lasers and everything else. Uh, now, I think in medicine and the life sciences, there's a huge interest in doing the same, okay? Not only doing basic science, but seeing the impact of that science on human health and participating in that. And so even if you read Science Magazine and Nature now, a lot of the, the, the papers that are published have to do with small molecules with exciting biological activity or new cell therapies or or biologics. So, so the journals see this too. Yeah. And I, and I want to dive into some of the, the um, therapeutics that you're developing at Scripps. But, but before we do that, just one, one additional question. As a nonprofit, you have a lot of freedom to go where the science may take you, right? And, and I think you have uh, probably a lot more freedom to take on risks that industry and, and companies may not have the luxury to take on. Um, as such, how do you think about that in terms of tackling some of the big health challenges out there that, that face us today? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So, so there, there are two sides to that coin. We can take on more risk. And in, in fact, academic institutions and, and, and scientists 
make their reputations by taking on risk and doing things that nobody has ever done before. Okay. So that, that's kind of part of the culture. Um, pharma tends to be a little risk adverse. So, so that's an advantage to doing drug discovery in the nonprofit sector. Uh, the problem with drug discovery is failure is expensive. And, and the further you go, the more expensive it is. So if you have a failure, in the clinic, it can be, you know, 20, $30 million in a phase one study. So, so you, you also, even though, you know, you want to take on more risk and do things that pharma is not doing, you also at some level need to mitigate that risk because as a nonprofit, um, you simply can't go out and raise more money, um, in the public markets or, you know, um, via other, uh, avenues that are available to for-profit entities. So there's a balancing act there, but in general, it, it's kind of crazy for us as a nonprofit basic and translational institute to compete with pharma because, quite frankly, we don't have the resources pharma has, and uh, that, that's that's not a useful thing for us to do, you know, if you look at, at all of the activities uh in life sciences. And and I know one of the, the areas and one of the activities that is of particular interest to, to you and, and Scripps is diseases of aging. Um, and, and so I, I want to talk about some specific programs, but before we dive in there, I'd love to just to understand the context about how you think about diseases of aging sort of at a, at a high level. Um, are there common elements that they share? Are there particular factors that overlap between various diseases? Um, how do you think about tackling all the diseases of aging that are out there? Or do you have specific ones that you're targeting? Yeah, so, so we do. We, when we started, we started with a relatively broad portfolio because um, when we started this idea of, of doing translational research in a nonprofit, um, and our portfolio is really, we have a, a large collaboration with the Gates Foundation and now Welcome Trust. So we do a lot in infectious disease. Um, and then our focus really, we, we do a lot of cancer. We have uh, uh, two programs in the clinic in the cancer area. Um, we do a lot with chronic diseases like fibrotic diseases and, and so forth. Um, but I would say uh, is, is, you know, we start, we've moved further. We, we've started to create themes um, around what we do. And like you say, one of our themes is, is, is diseases of aging and healthy aging. Um, I just turned 65, and I always say as a chemist, I'm a chemist by training, uh, you can actually do something about it if you work on it early enough, okay? You can actually make a drug. Um, so so one of the themes we have um, is, is healthy aging. And the idea of, of, you know, can we make drugs, historically we make drugs that slow the disease process. Can we make drugs that reverse the disease process? And as you know from your time in CIRM, um, one approach to do that is is by controlling cell fate. And so there's been a lot of talk about stem cells and stem cell therapy as a regenerative medicine. Uh, we we take a, a little bit um, of an unconventional approach towards regenerative medicine. We don't make, first of all, we don't 
in general do cell therapy. We use, uh, we make small molecule drugs, but we make small molecule drugs that um, impact the fate of endogenous stem cells in all of us. So all of our blood comes from hematopoietic stem cells. Our brain comes from neuronal stem cells, muscle and then skeletal from mesenchymal stem cells and so forth. So we have those cell types in our body and they turn into muscle or bone or, you know, a neuron or an astrocyte or what have you. And what we'd like to do is make molecules that control that fate. So, you know, one of the earliest um, programs we had at Scripps in doing this was we found small molecules that expand hematopoietic stem cells, cord blood stem cells. These are the, the stem cells in your, in your bone marrow that make all of your blood cells, your white cells, your red cells, your, your macrophages, your platelets. And so if you want to do a bone marrow transplant, you need hematopoietic stem cells. And if you could take, you know, stem cells from cord blood, placental cord blood, and expand those, you could have a matched donor for everybody. So, so we found small molecules that did that, and those are in late-stage clinical trials. And then we went on to um, look at MS. And, you know, the way people treat MS, it's an autoimmune inflammatory disease, so there's a slow decline. So slow the attack of the immune system on the myelin sheath, um, that coats the axons. Um, that 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 that's the approach that's been taken, which slows the progression of the disease. But what if you could make new myelin? Then you can actually repair the damage that's done. So myelin's made by oligodendrocytes, and there aren't enough oligodendrocytes in the brains of MS patients. Uh, those come from a precursor molecule uh, cell called an OPC. So we found a molecule that turned this precursor cell, an OPC, into an oligodendrocyte and made new myelin. So now that program is being partnered to move it into the clinic. So that got us going. Um, those were the earlier programs, but now we've created within Scripps a whole regenerative medicine portfolio. And the, the diseases we're targeting are osteoarthritis to make new cartilage, uh, lung damage, lung fibrosis, and other lung damage, even potentially damage from COVID by making new lung, okay? Um, making new skin for chronic diabetic wounds, repairing the heart, making new cardiomyocytes, heart muscle for heart failure, making new liver. For people who have liver cancer and need the cancer removed from their liver, you want to make new liver and making uh, uh, new cells that make the intestinal barrier. So those are those are the programs that we have actively ongoing, and uh, they're 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 all small molecule um, centric, and we have some pretty exciting data um, preclinically and. Now we're focused on moving some of these into the clinic. But the common theme is to repair damage, okay, and go backwards, not slow progression.
And, and, and Pete, those are a, a lot of very exciting programs you have. And, 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 I, and I love that idea of, of not just slowing the progression of the disease, but actually developing drugs that can reverse the, the, the disease process itself. Um, I want to spend just a, another minute or two talking about the difference between small molecule drugs um, that target these types of diseases versus cell therapies. Um, and so, you know, the, the cell therapy approach, oftentimes, you know, the MOA could be, the, or the mechanism of action could be those cells in graft and try to reconstitute the, the, the function of damaged tissue. They can also um, operate by the paracrine effect and recruit endogenous factors. So clearly with small molecules, there's no, there's no engraftment. Right, so you're trying to stimulate some some endogenous uh, factors or to promote cytokines that will then, as you said, direct the fate of certain cells. Are you also looking to 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 to, to stimulate or activate endogenous stem cells through through the use of small molecules? Is is that part of the equation? Yeah, almost all of almost all of our approaches are to activate uh, endogenous stem cells um, to to either expand them. So with lung, you have endogenous lung stem, stem cells, AEC2 cells, okay? We found molecules. We actually took uh, lung stem cells, human lung stem cells, and put them in little uh, wells and screened for molecules that allow those cells to expand, and only those cells. Um, so, so you give a small molecule, um, you can even do it inhaled, so it's targeted to the lung. And what happens is the AEC2 cells in the human lung expand. You make more AEC2 cells. They turn into the other cells in the lung, so you effectively make new lung. And, and we found molecules that not only do that in vitro, okay, in a little well, but they do it in living mice. And then if you give the mice models of chronic disease like lung fibrosis or lung damage, virally induced lung damage, the lungs repair and you can actually stain for new lung cells, okay? The beauty of that is all the other drugs people are making to treat, you know, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis or other chronic lung diseases, COPD, either focus on inflammation or they focus on fibrosis. So this approach is complementary, okay? You, you, can, you can treat inflammation or fibrosis, but at the same time, you treat and make new lungs, so you repair the damage. So that's the strategy we do. In almost all the assays we do, we screen small molecule libraries directly on endogenous uh, 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 stem cell populations. And, and Pete, as, as you think about the safety profile of these types of small, small molecules, I mean, how, how does that compare to other modalities uh, within the regen bed space? So that's a good question, too. Some of these mechanisms are very cell-specific, cell-type specific, okay? So you have built-in selectivity, and there's control. So, you know, organs have certain sizes, so there, there are mechanisms in the body that actually control expansion of cells. There, there are other mechanisms that tend to be um, a little less cell-specific. So there's a pathway called YAP, okay, that if you activate HIPPO-YAP signaling, uh, that controls organ size, okay? And, and that's been demonstrated in, in, in many, many animals. Um, 
so the idea is, is, is if you can make a molecule that, that, that um, turns on YAP, you can make a new heart or you can make new skin or you can make, you know, other organs. There, you know, the question is, how do you do get selectivity? So there, for diabetic wound healing and burns is a huge problem. You want to make new skin fast to prevent infection, okay? So there, we're making a topical version of that, and it's targeted to the skin, okay? We're also now making a version that's targeted to the heart, where you inject it into the pericardium, and it works just on the heart, okay? So in that case, you, you, you... what you do is you use some tissue targeting methods to get selectivity. In other cases, the selectivity is built in because it's an endogenous pathway that's kind of selective to that stem cell type. And 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 Pete, you you mentioned you know a, a variety of different um, uh, therapeutics targeting different uh, indications, so cancer, MS, uh, pulmonary fibrosis, osteoarthritis. You know, in an ideal world, as you sort of move a drug through the development uh, process, when would you plan to seek a partner or when do you think is the right time to spin out a company? Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, you know, to date, a lot of what we've done has been in collaboration with foundations, um, especially the Gates Foundation and and some pharma partners. and the way we think about it there is, is um, we take it basically to IND, okay? Um, and then we can go further um, uh, uh, and, and go into a phase 1A, 1B study or even a phase 2A study to show not only that the molecule is safe in human trials, but also that it, it has... Uh, there are some indicators of efficacy, okay, depending on the disease, those can be very different. Um, so, for example, we have, we have in cancer, we actually are treating cancer patients. We have a novel uh, cell therapy that's, that's a variation of CAR-T therapy where we engineer um, T cells, put those into patients, but then we also have a molecule that turns on and off those T cells. So there we're, we've actually taken those into trials with patients and we've dosed, we've dosed now three patients and uh, we, we have some uh, complete responses already with almost no safety issues. So we're really excited about that. Another program we made, we, we made with the Gates Foundation um, a small molecule drug that um, the idea is, is you take it with, as a sub-Q injection, a very simple injection, once every six months, and you either treat or are protected from HIV. So it's almost like a once-a-year vaccine that protects you from HIV. There, we actually partnered that um, late stage preclinically because we had a really terrific pharma partner that wanted to accelerate its development. So it depends a little on the program, but we really like to get to the point where the molecule's value is is a therapeutic uh, and its commercial value uh, uh, has, has increased significantly. 
and 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 Pete, from the from the business model perspective, um, it, it it sounds like you're you're likely you know filing filing IP, filing provisional patents around the compounds that you identify. Could you talk a, just a little bit about sort of the, the the strategy there? When do you feel like it's the right time to file a patent on a new compound? Uh, we we have a lot of entrepreneurs, I think, as listeners that that probably are you know debating about when to spend the money to file IP. Could you talk a little bit about that in the context of your your overall business strategy? Yeah, that's that's a complicated uh, and very case dependent um, question because it depends on the competitive landscape. Okay, and it, you know if you're in a crowded field, okay, and you know like we have a sting program, okay, that you know, and so do a lot of other people trying to make small molecule sting activators. There, there's so many people working in the field. You tend to be pretty conservative when you file a patent. Some of our work in the in the kind of regenerative medicine space, there's not too many people doing what we're doing. So there we can be we can move the molecule a lot further um, uh, through through, you know, uh, to basically candidate selection stage before we think about about, you know, um, protecting the molecules to give a longer patent life. Um, so that that becomes somewhat case dependent. Yep, I, I understood, and and that makes sense. Um, and, you know, Pete, I, I think we could probably spend the next two days uh, talking about Scripps and some of the exciting work you're doing. But I really want to applaud your efforts um, at Scripps Research, and you know, you're, I think I think you've really carved out a, a not only a novel model but uh, a novel approach in terms of using small molecules to target uh, many of these diseases. Um, so. With that, um, how can our listeners learn more about what you're doing, uh, donate to uh, two scripts, uh, and, and just learn more about the research that, uh, that, that you're conducting? Yeah, that's a good idea, and that's a good suggestion. <laughs> um, the way um, we have a really terrific website, um, it's scripts.edu. And a lot of the, we have, we cover a lot of our basic research programs because we have a lot of people doing basic research and also our translational research programs. And there are some uh, videos that overview, you know, the, the various programs we have um, that are also available through those websites. So um, there's a lot of information out there just at scripts.edu. Excellent. Well, Pete, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the show today uh, and for a really, I think, wide-ranging and fascinating discussion. Well, thanks for, thanks for the invitation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Well, Neil, what did you think? I thought that was a great wide-ranging discussion with Pete. You know, obviously, he has a ton of experience uh, in, in the space in general. Uh, I, I really enjoyed his perspective about how Scripps research fits into the broader ecosystem, you know, how they think about moving you know, largely academic science into you know, translation and through the translational process and into the clinic. Uh, you, know, you heard him talk about funding early stage clinical trials. When was the right time to think about filing IP? You know, that's obviously on a case-by-case basis. And then when's the right time to, to think about partnering with industry? And again, that's sort of a case-by-case basis as well. But you know, I think Scripps has a really unique model that, that you know, I think it was really enlightening to hear Pete talk about his perspective and how they fit into the, the, the ecosystem. On paper, these types of models sound great, 
where do you see the challenge for a nonprofit like Scripps straddling these worlds of the nonprofit and for-profit drug development? Well, you heard us talk a little bit about this idea of creating a self-sustaining business model, right? So that's clearly a challenge, right? So I, I think that's an ongoing effort at Scripps. So are, are they going to be able to develop uh, enough drugs in a large enough pipeline where they're able to partner that with industry to get licensing fees, get royalties, to create this self-sustaining business model? Um, so obviously that that's an ongoing effort. You heard Pete talk a lot about their pipeline, which I was really impressed with how broad it was. I didn't realize all the variety of indications that they cover, ranging from you know a variety of uh, oncology indications to uh, remyelination in diseases like multiple sclerosis. Um, you talk, he heard him talk about uh, acute lung injury and their, their pulmonary fibrosis programs. Um, so, you know, I, I think they have a really unique vantage point, but I think, you know, a challenge is can you actually create a sustainable model uh, from this that is not 100% reliant on, on donations? Um, and, you know, obviously they're working towards that goal, but I think that is a key challenge. On the regenerative medicine side, they're working to stimulate endogenous stem cells to address a range of conditions. What do you think about this approach? I think it's a great approach. I, I think it's uh, complementary, complementary to a lot of other approaches as well, right? So you heard Pete and I talk a little bit about the the idea of you know cell therapies that can actually engraft, reconstitute some of the function of damaged tissue, damaged organs. You know, small molecules aren't doing that, right? They're they're acting by an entirely different MOA. And you heard Pete talk about some of the some of the benefits in terms of safety, maybe by taking this type of approach. Um, and so I, I would also argue that, you know, the, the two approaches are not mutually exclusive, right? They could also be complementary. So I think they're, um, you know, if the small molecule based approaches prove to be safe and efficacious, you know, there, there, there is a, a tremendous variety, uh, an enormous market out there, um, with a whole bunch of different indications that these could work towards. And, and, you know, small molecules are historically much much cheaper to develop, um, much easier to distribute from a logistical you know, standpoint as well. So um, I, I, I think what they're doing is really, uh, is really quite interesting within the space. Well, given that, that last point, the economic element here, do you think that makes these particularly compelling? I, I do, yeah. I mean, I think if they prove to be safe and efficacious, um, I, I think the, it makes the small molecule approach you know, particularly attractive uh, to industry. I think it, it's particularly attractive to patients as well. If you think about um, just, just how easily small molecules are administered compared to these other types of novel therapies. Um, so, you know, I think uh, a lot of these programs are still relatively early in their life cycle, right? I don't believe any are late stage clinical trials yet, but they're moving through the pipeline, right? They're moving through the drug discovery process. Um, so I will be excited to, to see how uh, the programs move forward and, and would welcome Pete back on the show here to have another check-in in, in, the, in the not-too-distant future. All right. Well, until next time. All right. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for listening. The BioVerge podcast is a product of BioVerge Inc., an investment platform that funds visionary entrepreneurs with the aim of transforming healthcare. BioVerge provides access and enables everyone to invest in highly vetted healthcare startups on the cutting edge of innovation. From family offices and registered investment advisors to accredited and non-accredited individuals. To learn more, go to BioVerge.com. 
This podcast is produced for BioVerge by the Levine Media Group. Music for this podcast is provided courtesy of the Jonah Levine Collective.